Well, I'm glad to be back tonight. I appreciate you being here in the service. And, uh, I want to go to the book of Genesis, if you will, tonight. And, uh, I want to thank the preacher and his wife and the boys for taking me out for some lunch today. Enjoyed the fellowship. Learned about the Pentagons and things like that today. That was a great blessing. And I uh, appreciate your faithfulness to come back. I sometimes tell people, if you come and hear me preach once, <laughs> excuse me, it might be by mistake, but if you come back a second time, you have nobody to blame but yourself. You knew what you were getting into. So thank you for coming back. And uh, I may have to cough just a little bit. Once I get started, it may get better. But I want to go to Genesis 49. We spent a little time in this chapter last year uh, when I was here. You may remember or you may not. Uh, this is a chapter about Jacob blessing his sons. And uh, there's a son I want to deal with for a little while tonight from Genesis chapter 49. Here in this passage, Jacob's boys have gathered around him. Jacob's an unusual man in the Bible in a lot of ways. One of the reasons that he's unusual is he had three deathbed scenes. Now usually you only get one deathbed scene, but Jacob had three of them. He didn't die three times. But there were three times it looked like he was going to die and he gathered his boys in, some of them. And this is the third one and the final one. He'll call these boys in and speak to them about uh, really in the spirit of prophecy about some things, some of them that have happened, some things that will happen in the future. starts out like this. And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. Gather yourselves together and hear ye sons of Jacob and hearken unto Israel your father. And then Jacob will go through this passage. He'll deal with each one of these boys. You remember these boys. Verse 3, he deals with Reuben. Verse 5, Simeon and Levi. Then he get down to verse 8, talk about Judah. And on and he'll go through the rest of these boys. But I'm interested in one boy. We find him in verse number 20. And his name is Asher. And the Bible says this, verse 20. Out of Asher, his bread shall be fat, and he shall yield royal dainties. We're going to start in that verse and head through the Bible just a little bit. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, we love you today. Thank you for loving us. Thank you we can be in the house of God, assembled together with the saints of God. And I pray now, Lord, that you'll be glorified tonight, that your people will get help. If somebody lost, I pray you draw them unto Christ. Somebody backslid, Lord, I pray they'd be restored. If somebody was seen in their life, I pray the Holy Ghost will work in our hearts, Lord, and reveal our hearts to us. If somebody discouraged, I pray they'd find encouragement in the things of God. Lord, most of all, we want you to be glorified. We want you to be lifted up, magnified. So you help us tonight, and we'll thank you, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, and you can be seated. Not a lot said about this boy Asher in this passage. Verse 20, out of Asher his bread shall be fat, and he shall yield royal dainties. Now somebody said, preacher, what in the world would interest you about Asher? Well, you can look at me and tell I'm interested in fat bread, amen, and royal dainties. But what's going on in this passage? Well, Jacob talks about Asher. He's making reference to the fact that when Asher and the children of Israel get into the promised land, The land that Asher will inherit will be a fertile land. There'll be place, there'll be land that is easily 
uh, cultivated and uh, there'll be land that will bring forth a great harvest. And he may be making reference to the fact this bread, these royal dainties, he may be making reference to the fact when Solomon had talked about all of the grain that was brought to him. If you go over and study the large amount of grain that was brought to Solomon, a good portion of it may have come from this tribe of Asher in the place where they live. So we learn immediately that the place he's going to live is going to be a place that will be fertile. It'll be a place where you can grow things. Now, I want you to go with me to another passage of Scripture, Deuteronomy chapter number 33. In Genesis 49, Jacob is speaking to these boys individually, more or less. But in Deuteronomy, Moses is going to talk, and he's going to give us a prophecy about these fellas. He'll talk about some things that have happened, some things that will happen. But he's going to deal with them more on a corporate level, not just individually, but as their tribes. And so here in Deuteronomy chapter 33, we read this about Asher, starting in verse 24. Deuteronomy 33 and verse 24. And of Asher he said, Let Asher be blessed with children. Let him be acceptable to his brethren. Let him dip his foot in oil. Thy shoes shall be iron and brass. And as thy days, so shall thy strength be. Now, if we look here, if we remember what, what Jacob said, and add it into what Moses says, we come up with four things about the tribe of Asher. I want you to notice them in a moment. We're, we're getting warmed up here. We're going to preach in a minute if the Lord will help us. But in verse 24, he says four things about Asher. First of all, he said, let Asher be blessed with children. So I would say to you that Asher will be an abundant tribe. He'll have a lot of people in the tribe. We find that when the children of Asher get into the promised land, the men of Asher numbered over 53,000. It was one of the larger of the tribes of Israel when they came into the promised land. So this prophecy comes true. It's fulfilled. So he said, let Asher be blessed with children. Then he said this, let him be acceptable to his brethren. So the second thing tells me that Asher as a tribe will not only be abundant, they'll be acceptable. So what does he mean by that? Well, it's an interesting thing. If you study the history of Israel, and think about and study when Israel was going through the wilderness toward the promised land. You remember they were led by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And whenever that cloud would settle down, they would make up camp. They would, and they would, each tribe had a particular place appointed to them in which to camp around that tabernacle. The tabernacle in the center and the tribes around it. What's interesting about this is where Asher is camped. Now remember that in the in the family of Jacob, there is a division. There is a conflict. You remember that Jacob married sisters. He married Rachel and he married Leah. One fellow said the only good thing about marrying sisters is you only get one mother-in-law out of the deal. But he married sisters. Now I got all the ladies against me. I'm just joking, ladies. But he married sisters and there was always a conflict between those two sides of the family. You remember also that Leah was having children. Rachel was not having children. There was a conflict there. And so Rachel took her handmaid. We heard about that a little bit this morning with Hagar. Her handmaid Bilhah gave her to Jacob that he might, she might have children by her. And when, when Leah left off bearing, she got her handmaid. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just telling you it's what happened. And so we've got children from Leah's side of the family and Leah's handmaid and children from Rachel and Rachel's handmaid 
And there is a conflict between those two sides. That was part of the reason for the conflict with Joseph. There was more involved with that, but that was at least part of it. Now, remember that conflict. So what we have when the children of Israel are going, these tribes are going through uh, the wilderness and they're camping around the tabernacle, here's what we have. On the eastern camp, we have Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. Those tribes, they're all Leah's boys. When you go on the western camp, you have Benjamin, Manasseh, and Ephraim. Those are all either Rachel's sons or Rachel's grandsons. Then when you get to the southern camp, you have Gad, Simeon, and Reuben. Those are all either Leah's sons or sons by Zilpah, Leah's handmaid. So on those three sides of the tabernacle, that's, we'll call it segregation, has taken place. Those two sides of the family that don't get along well are not mixed. But when you get to the northern camp, you have Dan and Naphtali, two sons of Bilhah, and Asher, a son of Zillah, or Zilpah, right in the middle of them. So Asher is the only tribe, apparently, that God trusted to get along with a tribe from the other side of the family. That is a fulfillment of this passage where it says that he'll be acceptable to his brethren. Then he says a third thing about him. He said, let him dip his foot in oil. Thy shoes shall be iron and brass. Now the oil he's talking about is not pins oil. He's talking about olive oil. And if you had olive oil in that day, you were wealthy. And so it's telling us that in the land that Asher uh, 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 inhabits, there will be fat bread, royal dainties, there'll be oil, olive oil. There will also be mineral riches. He talks about the iron and brass. Moses had said this back in Deuteronomy 8. He said, the land you're going to is a land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness. Thou shalt not lack anything in it. A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass. So what we're reading about is a tribe that is abundant, a tribe that is acceptable, and a tribe that is affluent. They are wealthy. They have riches. Now here's really what we're reading. We're reading about a tribe that has everything we want. They have everything the world is after, and unfortunately, everything the church is after. Who among us does not want to be abundant? Who among us does not want to be acceptable? And who among us does not want to be affluent? So we have this tribe that has everything the world is after. And really everything we're after seemingly in our hearts. But then Moses will say one more thing about them. And I want you to notice it. He said, let Asher be blessed with children. Let him be acceptable to his brethren. Let him dip his foot in oil. Thy shoes shall be iron and brass. Now watch this next phrase, verse 25. And as thy days, so shall thy strength be. Now, this is an interesting statement. What are we going to do with this last statement? As thy days, so shall thy strength be. Now, here's what we'd like to do with it. If you've done this, I'm not falling out with you. But here's what we'd like to do with it. We would like to say that God is promising through Moses that every day that Asher faces, he'll have strength to match the day. That's what we'd like to say, but that's not what the text says. The text says, as thy days, plural, as thy days, so shall thy strength be. Now, if I were to say to you tonight, if I were to say to you, God's going to take care of you and give you strength for tomorrow, no matter how you live today, would I be telling you the truth? No, I'd be telling you exactly the opposite. 
of what the Bible says. Because the Bible said, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. I cannot find anywhere in my Bible where God said, If I live wicked today, He'll still give me strength for tomorrow. But what my Bible teaches me is, If I live wicked today, it will affect my tomorrows. You remember when Naomi and Elimelech left Bethlehem, Judah, and went down to Moab? You remember that? They dwelt there. So they went to sojourn, but they dwelt there ten years. And Elimelech died, and Malan and Kylian died. And when she came back, they looked at her, and they said, Is this Naomi? You know what happened? Ten years out of the will of God was telling on her in her countenance. And when you live a wicked life, it will catch up with you. So here's what God is saying through Moses. He's saying Asher will be abundant. Asher will be acceptable. Asher is the affluent tribe. But what we're going to find is even having all those things, Asher will be the ailing tribe. Asher fails at what God tells him to do. I want you to look with me in the book of Judges. Look in the book of Judges in chapter number 1. I want you to notice a couple verses here in Judges chapter 1. We're still heading somewhere, so stay with me. This may get better or it may get worse. I don't know. Judges 1 verse 27. Watch what the Bible said. Neither did Manasseh drive out the inhabitants of Eshem and her towns, nor Tanak and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Dor and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Ibleam and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Megiddo and her towns, but the Canaanites would dwell in that land. And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites to tribute and did not utterly drive them out. Now pay close attention to this language we're about to read. Neither did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites that dwelt in Gezer. Watch this now. But the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. In other words, Ephraim didn't drive them all out, but Ephraim allowed them to remain in the land Ephraim in charge and the Canaanites underneath, but they're allowed to dwell with them. Verse 30, or among them. Verse 30, neither did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, nor the inhabitants of Nahalal. Here it is again. But the Canaanites dwelt among them and became tributaries. So again, now we've got the Zebulunites. They have conquered enough so that the remaining uh, Canaanites are dwelling among them at their permission. Look in verse number 31. Neither did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko, nor the inhabitants of Zidon, nor of Elab, nor of Aksib, nor of Helba, nor of Aphek, nor of Rehob. Now watch the change in language. Verse 32. In verse 29, the Canaanites dwelt in Gezar among them. In verse 30, uh, the Canaanites dwelt among them. But in verse 32, but the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites. See the difference? The Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites. The inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Here's what we're finding. Ephraim conquered enough that the Canaanites dwelt among them. Zebulun conquered enough that the Canaanites dwelt among them. But Asher never conquered anybody. He never overcame anybody. He had to dwell in the promised land at the whim of the Canaanites. He had to dwell among them. He has everything that we think we want, and yet he is a failure in the work of God. He's the ailing tribe. You know what you won't find when you read your Bible? You won't find a judge out of the tribe of Asher. You won't find a prophet in our Old Testament out of the tribe of Asher. You'll find a mention one time of some valiant men, but their names are not mentioned. 
And though it says they're valiant, that never tells anything that they accomplished. You know what you really won't find out of the tribe of Asher in the Old Testament? You won't find a hero. You won't find one. Not in the Old Testament. You won't find a hero. But I want you to look in the New Testament. Luke chapter number 2. I want to read you a few verses out of this chapter. Luke chapter 2. We're almost to the preaching part. Verse 25. Luke chapter 2. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. The same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. He came by the Spirit in the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to light in the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now watch these next three verses. And there was one. I did not give you the title of the message. I'm going to give it to you right now. The title of the message is, There was one. And there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, watch it here, of the tribe of Asher. That's New Testament language for Old Testament Asher. And it said she was of a great age and had lived with an hundred, uh, lived with an husband seven years from her virginity. She was a widow of about fourscore and four years, which departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And she coming in that instant gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake of Him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. You know what we just found? We just found the hero from the tribe of Asher. We'll look in vain in the Old Testament, but we find one here. And I like the wording. I have a I have a peculiarity about my Bible. I believe every word is there by divine decree and divine design. I don't think there's any words there put up just to fill up space. I don't think God ever said, man, I wish I hadn't said that. I believe every word is inspired and preserved. Amen. Just say amen right there. And so every word. And so when the Lord suddenly says in verse 36, there was one. It's as though God in heaven said, you know, I've been watching ever since Asher was born. I've been looking for a hero out of his tribe. I can't find one. I can't find anybody living for me. Everybody's been failing. But there's one right there. I just found one. Her name is Anna. There was one. You know what I'd like to be? I'd like to be a hero for God. That's what I'd like to be. I'd like for God to be able to say to the angels when they say, you know what? Uh, Father, don't nobody want to serve you anymore. I'd like for God to be able to lean over the battlements of heaven and point out and say, look, there's Brian McBride. He's still a serving me. I'd like it when the angels say nobody believes the Bible anymore. I'd like for God to lean over the battlements of heaven and point at me and say, there's Brian McBride. He still believes the Bible. He still believes the Word of God. He still loves me. I'd like for him to be able to say about me, there was one. There was one. Anna is the hero. You know, Anna is the fulfillment of the passage that we read in the Old Testament. You say, well, preacher, I don't know if she fits. Well, let's think about it. Is she abundant? Well, she's not abundantly blessed with children, but in our text, she is abundantly blessed 
by one child. She comes into the house of God the day that Jesus came. And Simeon is talking about who the Lord is and that that's the Lord's Christ. And the Bible said that she coming in that instant gave thanks likewise unto the Lord. She is abundantly blessed by this boy. Have you been abundantly blessed by the child Jesus? I have. I was lost on my way to hell. And He died on the cross and paid the payment for all of my sin. You know what else He did? He resurrected me from the deadness of sin to the newness of life. And He's given me life and given me life more abundantly. He's been good to me. He's done exceeding abundantly above all that I could ask or think in my life. Anna was abundantly blessed by this child. Not only that, you say, well, preacher, is she is she the affluent one? Well, she's not affluent in, in earthly riches, but she's affluent in spiritual riches. How do you know? Because the Bible calls her a prophetess. Verse 36, and there was one Anna, a prophetess. Now, don't let that word scare you. That word prophetess, you look it up in the Greek language, it means a teacher. And what it is, is Anna knew enough about God and the Scriptures to teach others about the things of God. She is rich in spiritual truth. I'm going to tell you, be a lot better off to be rich in the Bible and in eternal treasures and spiritual treasures. You'll be a lot better off because all those riches in this world, the Old Testament writer said they're going to sprout wings and they're going to fly away. You can lose them in a moment. But if you lay up treasures in heaven where moth and rust of not consume and thieves don't break in, steal and destroy, I'm telling you, we ought to be rich and affluent in spiritual riches. Then she is acceptable. Because the Bible said in verse 38, She coming that instant gave likewise unto the Lord and spake of Him to all them that look for redemption in Jerusalem. Apparently there are folks who will listen to what she has to say. She is acceptable. She must have had a testimony that backed up what she had to say. And she is acceptable. And then, here's the last thing. Remember that last thing said about Asher? Now, I don't mean, don't get, don't get encouraged. This isn't the last thing in the sermon but the last thing on this part. Remember what that last thing we read about over there in, in Deuteronomy? It said, As thy days, so shall thy strength be. Now the Bible said she lived with an husband for seven years from her virginity. And then it said she'd been a widow for 84 years. Now, if she was a typical Jewish girl in that day, she got married probably between the age of somewhere around 15 or just a little bit older, typically in that day. So if she was 15 or somewhere in that range, got married to a man, they were married seven years and he died, and now she'd been a widow for 84 years, she's got to be about 100 years old. One writer I read said 107. One writer I said he read he thought she'd be about 130. I don't know how old she is, but I know she's got to be at least 100. Now listen to me. Remember what the Bible said? It said this. She was a widow of about four score and four years, which departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. Now you think about that a minute. She's over 100 years old. I don't think there's anywhere in the temple where she could live. So I take that to mean that every time there's an opportunity to come to the temple, 
Every time the doors are open, you'll find Anna there. She's over a hundred years old. How in the world can she manage that? Because God had promised through Moses in Deuteronomy, as thy days, so shall thy strength be. She's been living for God all of these years and she still has strength over a hundred years old to be faithful down the house of God. I know what the world says. They say you go to church too much, you're going to burn out. I don't think anybody's burning out much. I think most folks are rusting out what the problem is. But they say don't drag, don't drag your kids to church all the time. Oh, you'll ruin them. Well, Anna's been coming a long time. And it looks like she's getting along pretty good. I say to your friend, just uh, give your life to the work of God and the things of God and you will never regret it all through your life. It's not hurt her any. She's been faithful. She's been faithful. And God has blessed her. Blessed her to be able to come. I'm 64. I know I look much younger. I'm 64 years old. I get worn out. She's over 100. She's faithful at the house of God. Can I just stop here and preach a minute? You know, some say, well, I, I understand about people being ill and sick and all that sort of stuff. Sometimes they say, well, you know, I'm just too tired to go to church. Apparently, this woman, 100 years old, did not get too tired to go to church. She must have said, you know, I can, if she's like me, I have, I, I have aches in places I didn't know I had when I was young. But apparently, no matter what aches she had, no matter what difficult she had, she said, you know what? It's time to go to church. And I'm going. She's a hero. And God said about her, there was one. Maybe nobody else in Asher that I could point to, but God said I can point to that. Now here's the preaching. Take me just a minute. I want to be one like Anna. I want to be a hero for God. I want to be faithful. Now when I look at Anna, there are four things that she had to do to be faithful. Here's the first one. She had the purpose in her heart to serve God in the midst of a dark setting. She lived in a society that was wicked and ungodly. If you read the scripture surrounding the early days of Jesus and John the Baptist, read what it said. You'll find that Herod was the king. Herod was a wicked and ungodly ruler. He was a, he was a ruler. You remember about the murder of the infants. He was ungodly and he was wicked. The political crowd of that day was ungodly and wicked. Somebody said, preacher, the political crowd of our day is ungodly and wicked. You are exactly right. The majority of folks, I'm not saying all of them are, but you read what's coming out of Washington today, the laws that they're passing, the laws they're trying to pass, the things they're trying to do, it's wicked, it's ungodly, it's perverted. Some of it is unimaginable, uh, things you never dreamed that would go on in America. And you'd say, well, preacher, it's a wicked time. Well, it was just as wicked in the days of Anna, but she did not say, well, I can't do anything about it. I guess I'll just lay down and be done with it. That's what a lot of folk won't do. They say, well, I can't. I just can't do anything about it. But Anna said, I'm going to be faithful even if the religious crowd is wicked. Now, the political crowd was wicked. The religious crowd was wicked. You remember when later on when John the Baptist is baptizing in the River Jordan and the leaders, the religious leaders show up, the scribes and the Pharisees. And when they show up to John's baptism, John doesn't say to them, oh, we're so glad to have the Sanhedrin with us today. We're so glad to have religious leaders. You remember what he said? 
He looked at him. He said, you generation of vipers who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bring forth fruit, meat for repentance. He called them snakes. That's what he called them. So the political crowd was wicked and the religious leaders were wicked and the rank and file Jew didn't care anything about God. How do you know that? Because in the book of Malachi, when the Bible talks about John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ coming on the scene, it said he'll turn many of the children of Israel back to God. And you know, if if he's going to turn many back to God, then obviously many must be turned away from God. And when John went to baptize him, they started lining up to get baptized and to confess their sins and their wickedness and their ungodliness because nobody had been talking to them about that. Nobody had been talking about true righteousness and true spirituality. And they started crowding out to John to hear the truth. So she's living in a time of wickedness. She's living in a time of ungodliness. It is a dark setting. Darkness is moving in around her. But you know what she did? She just kept on serving God. She just kept on going down the temple. She just kept on speaking up. I'm going to tell you, friend, if you want to be one for God, if you want to be a hero, you're going to have to keep at it even when things look dark. We're just going to stay at it. In the midst of a dark setting, we're going to have to be faithful. You know what would be good? be good if God looked down at Walridge Baptist Church while other churches are going a different way, dropping the truth, trying to make it easier to fit in society. be good if God looked down at Walridge Baptist Church say, there's one. There's one. There's some churches, they're, they're turning tail. They're changing all, changing what they've believed and practiced and taught for years. I'm looking for a church that'll stay by the stuff. And you look down here and say, there's one up there. Stay by the stuff. Of course, you know the church is made up of people. So if Walridge Baptist Church is going to stay by the stuff, it means you're going to have to stay by the stuff in a dark setting. Not only did she, did she, was she faithful in the midst of a dark setting, but she was faithful and continued on in the midst of deep sorrow. Watch what it said again. It said she was a widow. About four score and four years. So for 84 years she'd been a widow. She stayed, she was married to a husband for seven years. And apparently God took her husband home. Now, some of you know what it's like to lose a mate. Some of you know what it's like to be married and God take your mate away. My mother-in-law, my father-in-law just went home to be with the Lord about a month ago. I talked to Sherry, my wife, yesterday. They're up there taking care of her mom. And I, I asked her how her day went. She said, well, it went went pretty good. I said, how's Nana? That's what we called him, Nana and Papa. I said, how's Nana doing? She said, well, she had a rough day. And Sherry said, we went down to the bank. We had to, we had to, Papa had a small insurance policy to help pay for the, funeral and such and she said we went down the bank because we got those checks in the mail and we had to go cash those checks and uh, so she, we went down there and she said that's the bank where Papa and Nana would go and he'd cash his check and then they would always a little restaurant around the corner they'd always go and eat she said we went down there and Mama, she said Nana began to weep and cry and she had a hard day I can't imagine what it would be like some of you know what it's like some of you know what it's like to lose a loved one a mother a father a son or a daughter, a brother, sister, a mate. You know what it's like. And I've seen people who have who have gone through deep sorrow in their life and they just sit down on God. They say, I'm not going to do anything anymore. They don't say it with their lips, but they say it with their actions. I'm all done. I'm just not going to serve anymore. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be faithful. I'm not going to live for God. Anna could have done that. 
Anna could have said, seven years, Lord, I had a husband. And he's gone and I'm all alone. And I'm not going to serve you anymore. She could have said that. And you know what? Most people would have looked at her and said, well, I can understand. But Anna did not say that. Anna said, can't you imagine her heart was broken? Can't you imagine? She spent many times weeping and crying over the loss of the one she loved. But you know what? She kept on going for God. She kept on going. I could see her get up. I, I, I was studying the, I'm studying a little bit again in the life of Abraham in that chapter 23. And I, I promise I won't preach you the whole sermon. But he, chapter 23, Sarah died. Do you remember? Sarah died. And it said Abraham came to weep and to mourn for Sarah. So he wept and mourned over the woman that he loved that God had taken. But then you know what it said? It said he stood up from before his dead. And he said to the sons of Heth, give me a burying place that I might bury my dead out of my sight. What did he mean? It didn't mean he wasn't ever going to think about her again. It didn't mean he wasn't going to miss her. But it meant that he was going to go on and he was going to serve God. He wasn't going to end his life because his wife was gone. And I look at Anna and she could have said, well, the one I love is gone. Everything is over. But she didn't. You know what she did? She set her affections on things above and she went on and served God in the midst of her pain. She found comfort in the service of the Lord. There is consolation and comfort with God. She got up and kept going. She served the Lord. She served in the midst of a dark setting. She served in the midst of deep sorrow. She kept on serving in the midst of daily service. So preacher, what do you mean? I read some things. I I read some verses here. You you might have thought, now preacher, why are you reading those? I read to you about Simeon. Did you notice there were three things said about Simeon that were not said about Anna? Here's what they are. The Bible said, see, both of them come into the temple when they're dedicating the Lord Jesus, the parents are. Both of them uh, see who He is and recognize who He is. Both of them are rejoicing. But there are three things said about Simeon that are not said about Anna. The first thing is, it says the Holy Ghost was upon him. doesn't say that about him. The second thing it says is that it had been revealed to him by the Holy Ghost that he would not see death until he'd seen the Lord's Christ. He had a special revelation from God. Anna did not have that. And the Bible said that he came by the Spirit into the temple. In other words, the Holy Ghost of God nudged him and said, go to the temple today. But it doesn't say any of that about Anna. It doesn't say the Holy Ghost was on her. It doesn't say she'd had any special revelation by the Holy Ghost doesn't say that the Holy Ghost nudged her to go in. You say, well, then why did she go? Because she always went. She wasn't there because the Holy Ghost nudged her one day and said, there's something special going on down in the house of God. She was there because every time there was an opportunity to be there, she headed down there. Can I just say this to you? One reason I hate to miss church is I'm afraid something will go on down the house of God and I'll miss it. So she went. She got the house of God. Now think about all the years that she went. Notice what it said in our last verse. She spake of Him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. She's looking for the Redeemer. How did she know a Redeemer was coming? Same way you and I know a Redeemer's coming. We got the promise. 
of the Word of God. She didn't have any special revelation. The Holy Ghost didn't overshadow her or go on her. But you know what happened? Every day she got up and went down the house of God. And I just figure in my heart, every day she was looking for that Redeemer. She was looking for Him to come. She didn't want to be missing the day He showed up. She just kept on coming. Day after day after day. She didn't have the advantages that Simeon had. And the truth is, she doesn't have the advantages that you and I have. Because we have the Holy Ghost not on us, but in us. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God and hopefully full of the Spirit of God. Everybody that's saved is immediately indwelt by the Spirit of God, but everybody that's saved is commanded to become full of the Holy Spirit of God. And you and I are indwelt and hopefully full of the Holy Ghost. So it ought to be easier for us than it was for Anna to be in the house of God every time we're supposed to be. If you want to be that one, you're going to have to be that one in the midst of continual daily service. Say, preacher, why you, why you keep going to church? I'm looking for Jesus. I miss looking for him. You know what? I'd like to be right. I'd like to be in the pulpit when he comes. I'd like to be preaching a good sermon about the goodness of God and the glory of Christ and have him come. That'd be, I'd hate to be sitting home watching as the world turns or general hospital or whatever. I'd hate to be sitting home in front of my television, uh, watching some junk when the Lord comes. I'd hate to be laying out of church when the Lord comes. I'd like to be in the house of God or I'd like to be talking to somebody about Jesus or reading my Bible or in my prayer closet when G- I hate to be involved in some wickedness when it comes back. The Bible said, my little children abide in Him that when He shall appear, you shall have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. I tell you, it'd be good. Wouldn't it be good if He just come back right now, right in the middle of this service while we're preaching about Him? <laughs> Hallelujah. God done singing about Him a little while ago. Wouldn't that be good? That'd be alright with me. That'd be good. Now here's the last thing and this is the last thing. She served Him. She was that one in deep sorrow in a dark setting in daily service. And she got to see a delightful sight. After all those years, coming to the temple day after day, after fasting and praying day after day after day, she walked in the temple one day and guess what? That one she'd been talking about. That one she'd been... Woo! Hallelujah! That one she'd been hoping for. That one she'd been teaching about. That one she'd been reading about. That one she'd set her heart on. All of a sudden, one day she walked in and there he was. I'm just telling you, friend, one of these days, there he's going to be. He's coming. He said, Behold, I come quickly. And then he said it again, Behold, I come quickly. And then in case you didn't get it the first two times, he said, Surely, I come quickly. And John said, Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I'm telling you, He's coming back, friend. Let's just be faithful. One of these days, the ones we've sung about, the one we've talked about, the one we've witnessed about, the one we've preached about, the one we've studied about, the one we've dreamed about, one of these days, we're going to see Him face to face. And it'll be worth every moment we've spent sermoning when they get a good glimpse of Him. i tell you this story. I was pastoring up in Michigan. And uh, in our church, we had two sections of pew. The building was laid out a little different than this. It was long ways. We had two sections of pews in the middle aisle. And we had three folks that would come to church on Sunday morning because we had some folks in the church that would go get them. There was up the road from us 
a mental hospital. They closed it down and they turned it into a prison. It's about, I don't know, 25 miles up the road from us. And then they took all the patients in the mental hospital and they, and they spread them around in little groups and little group homes. Just up the road, about a mile and a half from our church, there's a young lady named Missy who had one of those homes. And in that home were two sisters named Audrey and Tressie. And they had a fellow in that home named Clarence. In fact, his name was Clarence Thomas. Clarence going on to be with the Lord. And they had come out of that mental hospital. They weren't, they couldn't think like you and I think. Things, they couldn't grasp things. But they loved Jesus. And we'd send somebody down and go get them and they'd always sit right here. Audrey, Tressie, and Clarence. And they loved their pastor. I had a I had a singing group come in one time and they sang and then I preached and I said I was using the singer one of the singers as an illustration I was preaching on bitterness and I said now suppose brother so and so wronged me and Tressie and Audrey and Clarence missed that supposed part and they thought that brother had done something to me and I'm telling you he was lucky to get out of there alive that night. If the church wasn't doing what they thought or wasn't treating me like like Audrey thought I ought to be treated, she'd stand up and tell them so. So they're sitting on the front row. I don't know how many times this happened. It happened many times. I'd be getting ready to preach. I might be reading my text. I might be in my introduction. I might be halfway through my first point. And all of a sudden, out loud, and this is the way Audrey talked, she'd say, Preacher! I got a song up my heart. Well, what are you going to do? I'm going to let her sing. That's what I'm going to do. I can find my place again. So I'd say, all right, Audrey, come and sing for us. She'd look over at Tressie and say, come sing with me, Tressie. And Tressie would look over at Clarence and say, come sing with us, Clarence. And they'd come up on the platform when they got up here. I'd be standing over here and they'd look at me and they'd say, sing with us, Pastor. Now, then I would say what I said every time it happened. I said this exact same thing every time. I looked at Audrey, who just got done telling me she had a song on her heart. I'd say, Audrey, what you going to sing? And then she'd say what she said every time. I knew she's going to say it because she said it every time. She'd say, I don't know, what do you want to say? I wasn't surprised because that's what she said every time. So then I would say to Audrey and Tressie and Clarence, I'd say, how about it will be worth it all when we see Jesus? And then they'd say what they said every time. Yeah, that's a good one. And then the four of us would sing it. I would sing face in the congregation. and They would sing face in me because they didn't know the words. And so they were following my, they were reading my lips. And so the four of us would break in. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life trials will seem so small. When we see Christ, one glimpse of His dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. Now, I don't know if those are the right words, but that's what we sang every time. You listen to me. There are a lot of things I preached that went over Audrey and Tressie and Clarence's head. They couldn't grasp them. 
There are a lot of things they didn't have right. They had that part right. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. And all the things that bother us and that break our hearts and that cause us discomfort and set us back, all those things, we won't think a thing about them once we see the Lord Jesus face to face. And we'll be glad that we served Him. You know what we need tonight? We need some warnings. We need somebody who say, All right, Lord, I've had some sorrow. I dwell in the midst of a dark place. Lord, I get weary sometimes. But if Anna can, I can too. I'll be one. I'll serve you, Lord. I'll serve you till I see you. It'll be worth every mile. It'll be worth every trial. You know what old mountain preacher said one time when he was preaching? His name was Earl Hughes. He said this. He said, you don't have a single problem that one trip to heaven wouldn't cure. And that's true. It'll be worth it all when we see him. One of these days. I want you to bow your heads a minute. Your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. And maybe tonight you've had sorrow. Maybe tonight you're discouraged at the political situation. Maybe tonight I had a fellow call me a few weeks ago and he, somebody that he'd had great respect for in the ministry had fallen. He was discouraged about it. But he said, you know what, preacher? I'm just going to keep serving Jesus. Maybe tonight you'd want to come get an altar and say, Lord, would you help me be that one? Would you help me be faithful? Maybe there's some daddy who'd say, or some mama, where you work, who'd say, nobody wants to serve God, nobody cares about Jesus, but I'll be that one where I work. Maybe some young person say, where I go to school, nobody loves God, but I'll be that one. Maybe somebody, some daddy say, nobody in my family wants to serve him, but I'm going to serve him, I'll be that one. Maybe some mama would say, my husband doesn't want to serve my children, but I'm going to do what I can to serve him. I want to be that one. Maybe somebody will just say tonight, Lord, help me be that one to serve you and be faithful like Hannah until I see you. Be good to have God lean over the balance of heaven and say, there's one. There's one. There's one. Father, help us tonight. Help your people. I pray you speak to our hearts. I pray, Lord, you'd help us to see that you're worth serving. That you're worth our lives. That you're worth us giving our lives for. Like you gave your lives for us. Your life for us. I pray you'll help us tonight. Help encourage somebody Lord. Rebuke us for our laziness and our slothfulness. Help us to love you and serve you like we ought to. Like you deserve to be served. We'll thank you for what you do. And we pray in Jesus name. Amen. While the ladies.